Good morning. How you guys doing this morning? You sounded great. I love I love singing the Christmas carols. It's great, isn't it? Just uh, love celebrating Christ's coming. And um, if you're new here, my name is Matt. I'm the lead pastor here. They let me play guitar and sing every once in a while. It's not very often. So, but um, we are in our Advent series right now, and um, Advent is a season of time. Uh, it's about five weeks where um, the church just uh, takes a moment to take a deep breath over five weeks and to prepare our hearts and focus our minds on Christ's coming. So what we've done is um, we're doing an Advent series called The Arrival, and uh, we've been looking at um, how not just Christ's coming in the New Testament um, is, is the story. But that Advent or Christ's coming was something that God had put in place for hundreds upon hundreds of years. We have talked about that, that this book, the Bible, is a love story from Genesis to Revelation. That it tells this amazing story of a loving creator God that, that was sufficient and, and fully fine in and of himself, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in community. It didn't take long for humanity to blow it. We found that out. It's only like two chapters later, you know, the serpent's in the garden and tempts Eve and Adam. They eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it all spirals downhill. But God has a plan. We found, we talked about hope. That God had a plan, even in the garden. Uh, right when that happened, um, God said to the serpent that uh, he would raise up, that the seed of Eve would crush his head and that the serpent would bruise his heel. We see a prophetic allusion to the coming of Christ. That God had a plan. There was hope. That humanity wasn't destined for, for damnation, but that God had a plan. That he loved us. So it was an amazing picture that we had right in Genesis of Christ coming. And then last week we um, talked about the exodus as, as God had chosen a people, a bloodline that he would protect in order to bring his son to the earth. So hundreds of years before Christ came, God chose this people, a specific people for a specific reason. He protected them and he said that he would be their God and they would be his people. He walked with them, and, and it's, it's amazing stories. We see this, this story um, work its way out. That was, I talked a little bit last week about how we have the benefit of, of being able to go back through the Old Testament, the history, and, and see time after time after time that, that God steps into to time, into humanity, and does miraculous and supernatural things to, to fulfill his promises to us. That's one of the reassuring things we walked out with last week is that God will fulfill his promises, that he is strong, he is powerful. He's going to do what he wants to do, and, and he's made promises to you and I. And we talked a little bit about those last week. So um, this week, we're going to be in 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel, but we're going to be in chapter 17. We're going to be talking about a guy named David. Talking about a story, uh, David and Goliath. Anybody familiar with that story in Scripture? It's kind of a, a popular one. They've made it. There was like a, I think there was a TV series out even about uh, King David. Uh, but um, this is a, a neat story we're going to be looking into and uh, see, see what we can gleam out of this. 
Well, as we've seen and will see, God goes to supernatural length to fulfill his promises. And we just said there's nothing that he can't do. Um, we're going to start in chap uh, chapter 17, verse 17. So make a note there. Let's go ahead and pray before we read God's word for, for us today. Well, Father, we thank you that we can come and worship you. Lord, we give you this time. We thank you that you're here with us. We thank you for your faithfulness, that your mercies are new every morning. God, we say we are dependent on you. So, Lord, may your Holy Spirit illuminate these words. That you would give us understanding. That it would change us and grow us and, and grow us into the people that you've called us to be. Lord, we, we admit none of us here have arrived. And we are all looking to you more and more each day. God, I pray that you would use me for your kingdom and for your glory this morning. Give me the words to share that it would glorify you and edify us. We give you all the praise and glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belonged to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah and Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain side, one side and the Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. That is nine feet, nine inches tall. Nine feet, nine inches tall. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul, who was the king at the time? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Dismayed and greatly afraid. Have you ever felt defeated? Have you ever been dismayed and greatly afraid? We all have, haven't we? We have all been there. Life can be hard. There are things that are hard to understand and, and hard to overcome. Some things look almost impossible or completely impossible. Nine feet, nine inches tall. That is three inches short of 10 feet tall, a basketball goal. Three inches short of that. That's, that's, that's a little intimidating, isn't it? Man, I, I'm, I was thinking about how can we... How can we get an idea of, of how tall this is? And I, there's, there's just no way I was going to, you know, cut out some cardboard, but I couldn't find any cardboard at my house big enough, you know, or draw a picture or put it on the screen. Or, it would be, it would be like a, a grown man coming up to, to fight like a, a five-year-old. 
Think about the size difference. When we lived in um, Indianapolis and worked at the church there, there was a guy who attended our church that was seven foot six. Seven foot six. And I would stand on the edge of the stage, and, and he would come forward after service to talk to me, and I'd be standing on stage, and I think our stage was three feet or somewhere close to that, and he'd look me right in the eye. <laughs> and he'd shake my hand and say, good morning, Matt. And he would shake my hand, and his hand would wrap around my hand a couple times. It was the almost awkward thing. You know, when you usually shake a man's hand, it wraps around, and you give a nice firm handshake. I would, my hand fit in the palm of his hand. Have you ever shaken a, a toddler's hand? You know, a little, little guy comes up to you, hey, and you shake their hand, and their, their, their whole hand fits like right in your palm. That's how my hand was, in the palm of his hand. Well, we used to play basketball together. He was a, um, a semi-professional basketball player and tried out for the Pacers and other NBA teams. I think he played in the NBA for a little while, but um, we, we would play basketball together. But we went to IUPUI in, in downtown Indianapolis to play basketball together. And um, he had a really hard time finding clothes because they didn't make clothes his size, and he had, couldn't find shoes. Um, and I don't know if you remember a guy named Rick Smith who played basketball for the Indiana Pacers. He was seven foot five. I think that's what the list him, listed him as. I think he's more like seven foot four, like it matters. But um, he was tall. And uh, but tall, uh, um, uh, Rick Smith took this guy under his wing and would give him all his old clothes and give him his old basketball shoes. So they were really good friends. And. And this guy asked me one Sunday afternoon, he says, hey, would you like to go play basketball with me? I'm going down to IUPUI. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. I love playing basketball. So we go down there, and it's all a bunch of NBA basketball players. <laughs> I'm not an NBA basketball player, right? You know? and, um, I, but I was in really good shape, and I was like really excited. So I'm sitting on the sidelines, and Rick Smith is out there, and there's some guys from the Chicago Bulls are there, and Pacers, and I'm watching this, you know, basketball take place, and I'm sitting on the side shaking in my boots. I'm like, please don't call my name. Please don't call my name. Please. But they play like two or three games, and, and finally Rick Smith looks over to me. And he goes, hey, hey, come on out. You can play on your, on your buddy's team, which was not his team. And, um, and so we're out there, and, and I played basketball with these guys. And I am, Rick Smith, I always gave him a hard time when I watch him on TV because he looks slow. And I went to run down the court beside him, and he just took off past me. And I'm sprinting as fast as I can. One of his strides took about three of my strides. It was unbelievable. And so anyways, um, I get the ball the first time I can remember. I'm at NBA three-point range on the left-hand side of the court. Rick Smith is down in the paint on the block, and I'm wide open. They didn't think, you know, anything of me, right? And so I... I square up to shoot, and I shoot the ball. I kid you not, Rick Smith takes one step from the block to the NBA three-point range and just blocks my shot like 10 feet, you know, into the stands. It was, and I just look back and I'm like, how did he do that? He was so tall. It was so intimidating. I, and I remember one of the guys from Chicago Bulls run beside me. He goes, you got to know who's in there, man. You got to know who's in there. I was like, he was in the paint. He was a mile away from me. I, you know, it was, there, there is some serious intimidation. Things can, things can look completely impossible for us sometimes. Completely overwhelming. Seven foot six in the paint. And they're going to... You know what? God is bigger than the things that we face. And we're going to follow along in this story. We're going to continue on in this story and hear about David's introduction to Israel. Pick it up in verse 12. Now David was the son 
of Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand in the morning. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went to and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Now you might want to underline this verse here. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What? David the youngest? I mean, he's, he's not much to look at. He's a good-looking guy, but he's a little guy. He's, he sees this Philistine, and we're talking armies of the Israelites. Trained soldiers are looking at this Philistine, peeing their pants. And David comes along and sees it. Who's this guy to defy the armies of the living God? David's crazy. I mean, think about this. I mean, if we're just being real here, thousands of tough, tough guys. I mean, the toughest of the tough. Trained warriors. And it's, it's not like... It's, it's like, there's nothing we have compared to this today. Hand-to-hand -hand combat, blood and gore. We're talking, ooh, I mean, manly, beastly men, UFC kind of guys. David just straight up, who is this? Who is this? Continue on. And the people answered him in the same way. Show, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Can you imagine that, right? Your little brother comes in. What are you guys doing? Hey, look at this guy. You know? And the oldest brother's like, David, you know, driving him crazy. We all have that little brother, right? Well, I do anyways. We all don't have little brothers. I had to have two little brothers, so it hits home for me. Um, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? Here you can hear the condescending 
voice there. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul the king. And he sent for him. The king sent for David. And and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him, delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. You might want to underline that. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. The first fill-in in your notes, as you came in, you should have received a little program. There's some fill-ins on the back. The first one is this. David isn't the hero of this story. David isn't the hero of this story. Now, it's really easy for us to hear about this and and think to ourselves, wow, you know, 10-foot giant, you know, monster, and and David's the wild man who's confident, and, and we can really focus our eyes on David. But we have to focus not on David, but what David says and the things that I, I had you underline. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the bear. The Lord will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. The Lord, who is this that comes against the Lord's armies? The Israelites were focused on Goliath. He's big, he's ugly. He's strong, he's athletic, he's a literal giant. It's hard not to focus on something like that. And it's really interesting what happens when our minds and our hearts meditate on something or someone. You know what? We have a tendency in our humanity, in our weakness, in our flesh to to meditate on the wrong things. To meditate on the wrong things. But what was Davis, David focused on? What, did, what was David seeing? What did David see when he saw Goliath? He didn't see a 10-foot monster. He saw the armies of the living God shaking in their boots. And he was like, what in the world? Why? We, we serve the living God. God, creator God almighty all-powerful, all-knowing. But we tend to struggle with that kind of thinking too, don't we? We see the the struggles in life and and the hardships in life, and and it's okay to be honest with ourselves here today that, that as we're going through life, and something hits us really hard that we don't understand, that's, that's when the rubber meets the road in our faith. That's when things get real. Do our lives match up with what we say? You know, that's, I mean, that's where it gets real. 
And, and if we're not honest with ourselves and say, you know what? Sometimes my life doesn't match up with what I, I say I believe. Then if we don't admit to that, then we'll never grow past it. You know, we have to be real with ourselves, real with the Lord, real with our brothers and sisters in Christ, have those conversations and just go up and say, you know what? I know the Bible says that God's going to provide for me, but man, I just lost my job. And my car's going to get repoed. If I'm not careful, we could lose our home. I just don't see God's hand in this. Matt, would you pray with me? Would you, would you, would you just come to the Lord in prayer with me? I'm, I'm just struggling right now. If we're not honest, we'll never grow past those things. You know, God uses the hard things in our lives for our good. God uses these things to draw us closer to him. And if we're not willing to be open and honest and admit our failures, our frailty and weakness, we'll just keep on plowing forward in, in an unrealistic, unrealistic mentality and, and, and not grow in our faith. We need to be honest. You know, God knew that we would struggle with our thinking. God knew we would struggle with our meditating. And, and really, God knew we would struggle with our worship. Because this meditating and thinking on something is, is, is a form of worship. In our home, we call it stinking thinking. And I'll go to the kids every once in a while and say, How are you doing with your stinking thinking? Or I'll go to my kids. I, I know I've gone to my kids before and I said, Man, I am really struggling with my stinking thinking. Where I'm... I am allowing my mind just to run crazy with unhealthy thoughts and wrong things that don't align with God's word. And God knew we would struggle with this. In 2 Corinthians 3 through 6, it says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And, and right here it is. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. You know, God knew that we would struggle with stinking thinking. And that's why he put this in his word. That we would take every thought captive and bring it to obedience to God's word. What does his word say about what we're going through? What does God's word say about what I'm feeling and, and what I'm dealing with in life? What does God's word say about others and how they treat me and how I should respond to them? What does God's word say about what I'm responsible for? If we really put this biblical principle to to action in our lives, it would change our lives. What am I thinking right now? Why am I thinking what I'm thinking right now? Lord, is, is what I'm thinking, does, does it line up with your truth? Does it line up with, with what your word says about me? What you say about me? Proverbs 23, 7 says that we become like what we dwell on. Now, that's a Matt Hout paraphrase. You can go read it. But that's kind of the idea, the principle in Proverbs 23, 7, that we become like what we dwell on. What are we dwelling on? It's one of the reasons that I love the worship music that we get to sing 
together is it really focuses our mind and hearts on the Lord. And not only that, it does it for us individually, but it does it for us corporately. So as we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ and, and the drummer starts playing a beat, we're all kind of on the same beat. And uh, as the lyrics are on the screen, we can all sing the same lyrics that are to God and about God and, and focus our mind and hearts on Him. And as the singers sing the melody, the melody line, we can all sing that melody line together. It unifies us in focusing and meditating and worshiping God, that we would focus on Him. I love that about worship. You know, the Israelites were focusing on fear. They really weren't focusing on Goliath. They were fo focusing on what Goliath was doing in them. They were allowing their minds just to go on a rampage of fear and worry. Oh my gosh, this guy's a monster. He's nine feet, nine inches tall. Look at that spear. It's bigger than I am. He's going to tear me limb from limb. Nobody can defeat him. They were focused on fear and they became cowards. David focused on God and God saves the day. What do you want to be? Who do you want to be? What are we focusing on? We need to focus on Christ. Because God says that he is making us more and more in his image, in Christ's image. That God is growing us and shaping us. This is what we, the big, big church word for this is called Sanctification. God is continually growing us and changing us. He's sanctifying us for himself and for his glory and for his kingdom. God is growing us. Don't get caught up focusing on temporary things. Get captivated by the creator. David was captivated by God. Let's move on in verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put on a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. <laughs> now think about this. Thousands, thousands of warriors with swords and all this armor standing on this mountain, looking across this valley to thousands and thousands of, of other warriors covered in bronze armor and all this stuff with spears and swords, shields. I mean, the scene must have been ridiculous. And David... A sling, <laughs> five stones. He's a kid. Just walks, walks out there. Are you kidding me? I'm guessing the Israelites were standing there going, we are doomed. What is, what is Saul thinking? How could he allow this kid to go out here? We're going to be slaves. That's what this means. We are slaves. The Philistine moved forward. Verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked at and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? 
And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it, and it struck the Philistine right on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. Now, they didn't share this part of the story in children's church, just so you know. You guys are getting the uh, PG-13 version, okay? When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharaim and as far as Gath to Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the armor, Ab, army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now, two things I want to point out from this. The first one is this, and it's the second fill-in in your notes. When God fights our battles, we can never lose. When God fights our battles, we can never lose. David didn't have a sword. David wasn't a part of the army. He had no formal training. David was a boy. David could not win. But God can. Whatever you are facing in life, no matter how big or how strong or how impossible, God can drop it with a stone. God can drop it with a stone. What do we believe about God? Is he, is he bigger than our finances? Is he, is he bigger than our fear? Is he stronger than our worry? You see, David lived out of the big picture. David lived out of the big picture. When I was going through ministry school, I moved to Vancouver, BC. Beautiful area out there in the Northwest. And, and as I was there, uh, to get a little bit of extra spending money, I would teach guitar lessons. Guitar is not the easiest instrument to learn, and, and if you develop bad habits initially, they can really limit your progress and, and your potential. And so I would start out these guitar lessons with very basic, simple things. 
And a lot of the students I would teach, they, you know, they get three weeks in, they'd be like, Matt, man, are you ever going to teach me to play a song? I mean, what is this, these scales, and I'm doing all these exercises, and, you know, most of the students would stick with it for three to five weeks, and then they'd just quit playing. But what they didn't understand is that some of these techniques that I was teaching them and some of the, the strengthening techniques for their fingers were, were teaching them to hold the guitar properly and, and uh, attack the strings properly and hold a pick properly and attack the strings with the pick properly so that long term down the road they would be able to play the more difficult pieces that, that were there. It's kind of like the, um, the Karate Kid. You remember the Karate Kid movie? Wax on, wax off, right? He puts David to work on his car lot and David's like cleaning cars for six months. He's like, wax on, wax off. And David, or yeah, or what's his name? Uh, Daniel gets, gets tired of, of cleaning all these cars. He goes, all you're having me do, you're just making money off me because I'm cleaning all your cars. And he goes to hit David, and, and, or Daniel, and he, he says, wax on. And he hits him, and David goes, wax on, and blocks the punch. Or, you guys remember that scene? And he wax off. And then he starts trying to hit David, he's, or Daniel, and he's doing all this stuff, right? Right then, Daniel understood that all these things that he was teaching me, he's strengthening my arms to defend myself this way and this way and these different things. David was living from the big picture. That God is a creator God. He knows the beginning and he knows the end. And David understood that. God knew that there was this, Philo this, this Goliath from Gath, this Philistine that was going to come on. God wasn't surprised when Goliath stepped out onto the battlefield and everybody was shaking in their boots. David understood that God saw the big picture and that God wasn't afraid of Goliath. Therefore, David wasn't afraid of Goliath. David was living out of the big picture. Amazing. That's what it's like when we're going through something difficult. God is up there. And he's saying, hang in there. Hang in there. I have plans for you. Remember eternity. Now, I don't know what you're going through right now. Maybe it's something really difficult. Maybe it's something really hard. God is saying right now, hang in there. Hang in there. Don't, don't get caught up in the temporary. Remember the eternal. I'm in control. I love you. I am with you in your suffering and your struggles. And here's the reality, is that our, some of our struggles may not end on this side of eternity. But eternity with God is better than a, a struggle or suffering-free earthly existence. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, God's word tells us, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. David didn't see Goliath. He saw a powerful God who had delivered him from lions and bears. What are we looking at? What are we focusing on? As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary, but the things that are unseen are forever, eternal. We fail in the battle because we lose sight that the war is already won. You could say it this way. We struggle in the temporary because we lose sight of eternity. Don't forget who you are and your eternal destiny. 
Don't forget what his word says about you. You know, we have so many people in our ears telling us who we are. This is who God's word says you are. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed you, has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose you. Now you could put your name in here. Even as he has chose Matt in him before the foundation of the world, that Matt should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined you for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined, you have a destiny. You have a destiny that God put in place before time began. An inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I could go on and on. That's Ephesians chapter one. Don't forget who we are. Don't forget who you are, that before the world was created, before time began, God knew your name. He had plans for you, and he knew everything that was going to happen in your life. Nothing surprises him, and he has your tomorrow already for you. What an amazing truth. We lose the battle because we lose sight that the war is already won. It's already won. All right, moving on. You may be sitting out there thinking, what in the world does this have to do with Advent and Christ's arrival? I mean, Matt, this is great stuff. Or David's awesome, that's great. But what in the world does this have to do with Advent? And that's the second thing I want to point out about this section. Number three in your notes is this. David is meant to point us to Christ. And so it's, it's so easy for us to read through here and get caught up in these amazing stories in the Old and New Testament about guys like David and Paul and Moses and, and Adam and Eve and, and think about them and, and think about what's going on in the culture at the time and the context of what we're reading and everything else. And then we forget that every page of this book is meant to point us to Christ. All of it. And God in his amazing sovereignty and, and his wisdom put every story in here on purpose. Every single story in here is on purpose. My kids were watching the story of Joseph yesterday and they were talking about it and, and um, I was like, what was, what was God doing? Why would God allow Joseph to be thrown into prison for things that God told him to do? I mean, think about it. That's not fair, is it? He's thrown into prison. He's forgotten left in there for years? Why would God do that? It's amazing that, that God allowed some horrific things to happen in the Old Testament in order to point us to Christ. Check this out. Check this out. Now, I'm going to read a couple of things, and I want you to tell me who I'm talking about, okay? And um, 
You see, David or, or, or somebody else. A child was born in Bethlehem. Who are we talking about? Jesus? David. Of the tribe of Judah, David or Jesus? Both. Both were born in Bethlehem. Both were the tribe of Judah. Listen to this. The boy who was destined to be Israel's greatest king, he spent his youth working for his father, David was anointed king long before he was recognized as king. He was sought and hunted by Saul who desired to kill him even though he didn't deserve it and did nothing wrong. David's first public act was the meeting of Goliath. Man, he knew how to make an entrance, didn't he? Similarly, our Lord's first experience following his baptism was the temptation by Satan in the wilderness. The first part of David's reign was met with great acclaim by the nation. The Lord Jesus was met in his triumphal, triumphal entry with cries of Hosanna, the son of David. It was not long, though, until David was rejected by Israel and had to hide in a cave. John tells us that Jesus came unto his own and he was rejected. They received him not. As a strange company of men gathered with David in that cave, some 400 of them, who were they? They were the distressed, the debtors, the discontented, but somehow they were attracted to David. The inspired writer to the Hebrews said, Let us go forth, therefore, unto him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. You would find it most interesting to read the story of these men who joined David and who were faithful to him at the time of his rejection. When Paul wrote to young Timothy, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Jesus' story doesn't start in Matthew. It starts in Genesis 1 and continues all throughout Scripture. All of these stories are making the supernatural work of God miraculously stepping into time and preserving a people, preserving a bloodline, preserving a priesthood, preserving a royal king line in order to bring his one and only son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, to earth to save us. David is meant to point us to Christ. God allowed the things that happened in David's life to, to point us to a, a greater king. David is, is different than, than all the other kings that served Israel in that this. David served as priest and king. Unheard of. In fact, not allowed. Wrong. The law clearly states that it shouldn't have been done. David did it. Why? Why would God allow his law to be broken? To point us to Christ, our true priest and king, who made a way for us. The priest would, would bring the sacrifice before the Lord to atone for the sins of the people. That was the priest's role. What did Jesus do on the cross? He atoned for our sins. His blood covers our sins. And it's so easy for us to read these stories and think, wow, David's amazing. He is. But he served a more amazing God. Think about the supernaturalness of this book. The story after story after story about these, these men that God used in order to point us to Christ. 
Man, as I read this and think about the the parallels of David's life, of Joseph's life, of Moses' life, and, and how they pointed us to Christ, I'm like, what more proof do you need that there is a real God? who's in control of things, is all-powerful, all-knowing. How much more proof do we need? It's amazing to see God's hand just penetrate time and humanity in order to work his will in our lives. David points us to Christ. Our culture today is looking for something or someone who can fill the void or live up to great expectations. And we put our hope in leaders and politicians, entertainers and actors or ideas and plans, but there's only one who can fill the void inside of every human heart. And his name is Jesus. Kings can't do it. Presidents can't do it. Policies can't do it. Governments and science cannot and will not suffice. Jesus can. Jesus is. And Jesus will. In two weeks, we are going to celebrate Emmanuel. That means God with us. In this time of preparation, let us focus on his goodness, his kindness and grace. Let our season of giving be a season of worship to the King of kings. And Lord of Lords. And as we read this book, let's remember Christ and who this story is all about. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word and the great love that is revealed to us through your word. God, it's the stories that we've read so far are so amazing, and there's so many more where you, you step into time, you step into humanity, and, and you work your will in and through broken people. So, Father, we just pray that you would do a work in our hearts and in our minds, that you would draw our attention to you. Lord, in these last couple of weeks before we celebrate your coming, Father, move on our hearts. Let your Holy Spirit move on our hearts, that we would, that we would come ready to celebrate the king that left heaven, came to earth, and made a way for us to be in right relationship with you. We give you all glory, honor, and praise, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.